0: You are listening to the Regeneration Rising Podcast, a podcast from the Kavira Coalition about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of agrarians in the United States. Each episode will explore what it means to work in regenerative agriculture, how people came to choose this as their livelihood, and why it's important to them and the future. We hope to build a foundation for a strong community of future agrarians and land stewards with a regenerative approach to community relationships and the land.
1: Sanders. I am Kibera Coalition's New Agrarian Program Colorado Manager, and today on the podcast, I'm interviewing Byron Palmer. Byron is over in Petaluma, California, and he is with the Sonoma Mountain Institute. They do ecological restoration on landscapes with cattle, and he also runs Grounded Grass-Fed, or Grounded Grass and Livestock, uh, which is a direct market and consulting business. The reason that I chose Byron for this interview is because we were having conversations with our new agrarian program apprentices about transitioning from more of an urban, maybe a suburban environment to the rural and agricultural lifestyle and how that might be kind of hard for folks to transition. And so Byron comes from, also like myself, comes from a suburban environment and has some pretty funny stories to share. So thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy So, Byron, tell me, where are you chatting with us from, and where do you work currently?
2: Yeah, I am chatting with you from Petaluma, California, north of the Bay Area, north of San Francisco, about an hour or so, and I'm actually on Sonoma Mountain, nestled on a a little hill at about 600 feet of elevation on the, you know, technically the smallest mountain, I think, in California, Um, and uh, I'm in my office.
1: Right on. You just told me um, just a minute ago that you got done loading cattle. Tell me more about your job.
2: The nonprofit that I work for is, is Sonoma Mountain Institute. And I'll, I'll refer to it in the future as SMI, uh, because it's hard to say all those syllables in a sentence. But yeah, Sonoma Mountain Institute, a nonprofit that's focused on ecological restoration, uh, using prescribed herbivory. So I, essentially, I manage, you know, megafauna on the landscape, we choose cattle, uh, because they're easier to work with than uh, bison or mastodons in my context. And for them, I manage uh, I manage ranches that they own. And I also manage uh, a number of leases that we have around surrounding counties. We manage land that other nonprofits own. We manage county parks uh, where the public has access. And we manage private land as well. So I have about nine properties in our management portfolio at any given time. I also have my own business. It's called uh, Grounded Grass Fed or Grounded Land and Livestock, depending on who we're talking to. And We have a small direct market program, uh, beef, and we also do agricultural consulting and ag services and equipment sales as well, agricultural equipment sales.
1: So tell me, um, where are you originally from and how did you get into agriculture?
2: Oh my goodness. Yeah, such a great question. Well, I am originally from the suburbs. I'm from a town called Alameda. It's in the East Bay. Um, if you're from the Bay Area, California, you think there's only one Bay Area. You don't know that other states or places say they have a Bay Area. But I'm from the East Bay, uh, Alameda. It is right next to Oakland, California. I grew up uh, in you know pretty standard suburban, quasi-urban situation. That's, that's where I grew up. And there was how did you get into this, right? Okay, so transitioning. So I grew up, as I said, in the suburbs, I went to college, Um, I read books in college, I don't know if anyone else read books in college, but I read books in college. And the book said, the earth is burning, the earth is on fire. And I thought that is some bad news. And along the way, uh, making this story short, I discovered that agriculture was responsible for a large component of the ecological footprint, which makes a lot of sense. I eventually got involved in environmental activism. And during that Period of time, I realized that I was most interested in um, learning about agriculture. And I actually ended up getting a job doing documentary filmmaking out of college. And we were looking at how campaign finance affected policy. And I ended up working on a segment and producing a segment that looked at the relationship between agricultural policy and campaign finance. And I ended up on a lot of farms and ranches. And I realized in that period of time that I wanted to participate more in the actual food system itself. And I had a lot of ideas about what that would be like that were not uh, connected to reality. And I got myself on my way and started taking courses, uh, sort of non-traditional sustainable agriculture courses to learn more essentially over time. And I got more and more involved. And then eventually I got exposed to holistic management, I wanna say back in 2008 or 2009. you know got exposed to the idea that that herbivory itself is a power for good and i i got really enamored with that and so in that transition from you know ideas in college about the earth is burning and essentially wanting to tell those stories through documentary filmmaking realized that I wanted to directly participate in the work itself. So yeah, I got interested in holistic management and ended up getting involved in a two-year program, two-year program called Regenerative Design Nature Awareness back in 2009 out in Bolinas, California, which is on the coast, a tiny little town, little weird town that's really interesting and cool. And I was there for two years um, studying essentially regenerative design and nature awareness, uh, Know, permaculture, tracking, primitive skills, that kind of stuff. I call it professional hippie camp. I got a, I got a master's in professional hippie camp and, uh, I have that certificate somewhere.
1: Is, is that certificate made of, um, spit and, and bark?
2: Yes, it is a hundred percent made of spit and bark, <laughs> which is, which is also <laughs> true of all of my clothing and, and most of the things that I use on the daily, <laughs> most of the things I use on a daily basis.
1: So in today's context, what does a typical day look like for you in your kind of balance between these two jobs?
2: Yeah. Well, most of my most of my work is for Sonoma Mountain Institute and a typical day really will depend on the season. So we are a custom grazing outfit meaning we take in other people's cattle for care. It's kind of like cattle daycare and we take them for part of the year. So cattle come in in our area. December ish and they leave in June ish we have mild winters so our competitive advantage really uh, is that we have grass when other folks don't have grass so people send us cattle in December in the grazing season what I call the grazing season which for us is December through June a typical day might look like you know in the morning waking up making some coffee before the wife and the in the kid are up letting the dogs out getting ready packing up you know packing up my lunch for school so to speak. And then possibly loading up, uh, loading up an ATV trailer, dogs in the truck, head to a ranch. We have cattle on four different ranches at any given time, and so often a couple times a week, I'll show up on a different ranch and help the team wherever, you know, wherever I can be helpful, moving the cattle. Um, typically, a cattle move might take, depending on the complexity of the terrain and the paddock and the size, anywhere from an hour to four hours for. Uh, a group, and then typically I'll I'll head back. I might hit the office um, and knock out some of the strategic projects or pending compliance issues, keeping us organic. You know, chasing down NRCS grants, streams of funding, things like that. Um, and then I'll finish up the day with you know I call it operations, stay married, participating in the household. You know, do some dishes, hang out with your daughter, make sure that you know she ends up being a cool person, and. Uh, yeah. And then finish up. And then me and my wife, you know, we try to make sure we get in at least a half an hour of Netflix by, by nine o'clock so we can feel like we actually accomplished something for the day. Um, we're about to run out of the Shit's Creek episode. So that's going to be really sad. I feel like we've got two episodes to go and uh, we're kind of not watching them because we're feeling really scared about what's going to happen when we're through the last episode.
1: I I feel that. I feel that on such a, such a deep <laughs> level. I have watched... My show is 30 Rock and I watched it six times because I felt this, this deep sense of like (laughs) emptiness when it was over. Like I was a different person. Yeah. 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 So I I understand. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. You got to run it back. 30 Rock's (laughs) great. I really, I'm a big fan for sure.
1: So yeah. Tell me, um, on a scale from hermit to social butterfly, where do you find yourself?
2: On a scale from hermit to social butterfly where do i find myself is it's a really good question because honestly i don't even know i think some people clearly fall in the specific categories i really like people and i like connecting with people um but that is also exhausting and so while most people that know me would consider me an extrovert i'm also one of the first people to leave a party because i just get tired because honestly, I really care about people. I want to know about them. And I ask a lot of questions and then i run out of gas. Right. And, uh, I want to say like two years ago, I filled out a, like a psychological Facebook profile quiz, which is where you can get, I feel like the best information on mental health. And, um, it was like, what kind of person are you, you know? And I clicked on the survey and, um, I filled out all the questions. It was like, you're an introverted extrovert. And I was like, Oh, <gasps> I feel seen by Facebook and all of its algorithms and, you know, and yeah, anyway, so I, I would say somewhere in the middle, if you met me, you'd say I'm probably more on the social butterfly spectrum. But if you watched what time I leave a party, you might say I'm introverted.
1: Yeah, I totally um, agree with that. I think it, it is misunderstood when you're because I am the same way I'll go to a party and have one really long deep conversation with one person at and then yeah. leave because I'm like, yeah. that was all that my brain needed
2: uh, from this I'm, party. <laughs> that's that's yeah. it. That's yeah, that is <laughs> that is it. Yeah. It's interesting, right? It's hard when you don't fit into a box, but in general, yeah, I like I like people.
1: So tell me about your first opportunity working on not necessarily any farm, but on a farm or ranch in an isolated place.
2: Yeah, I um so my my first experience working in a more rural location, uh, was in Bolinas, California. I think rural is obviously relative to those who are experiencing it. So if you have to drive an hour to town, um, you know, be to driving forty-five minutes to to the coast of Bolinas from a major town might seem like not that far. But at the time in my life, I had also, uh, when I was in Bolinas, I had sworn off of transportation because of its impact on climate change. So I got rid of my car. And then I moved to a rural location. Those two decisions at the same time were not smart. They were made by someone that didn't have the capacity for, uh, I feel like protracted thought. Um, and, uh, so I was really isolated, even though I was only 45 minutes, um, from town. And so I would have to take public transportation out of there. So I would have to hitch a ride down the road. And I was at the end of a road that was near a national park. So, and there wasn't a lot of traffic. So I might have to wait for a half an hour to hitch a ride or get another farm intern to give me a ride. And then I'd get it into town. And then in order to get back to my home where my family lived, I would be on public transportation for three hours and I would transfer like three times and people would invite me to social activities in a, in town. Um, you know, and that town might be an hour drive away, but it would take me half a day to get there. And I would show up you know, and I remember feeling resentment when I would show up because I'm like there and I'm like, it was a great journey. and they're like, sweet, get in here, it's totally fine. What you know, and they drove like twenty minutes. And they would have like no concept of the fact that I just watched like three people throw up on public transportation and like I missed a bus. And I had to pee, but I, there's like nowhere to pee because I was like in public, but I couldn't miss my transfer And I'm like holding it. I'm like, should I piss into my water bottle? I should not piss into my water bottle because you can get in a lot of trouble if you piss in your water bottle on, in public, you know? And so I, uh, it was, it was hard. It was hard to figure it all out, you know? And that was, that was my first experience and it felt pretty isolating. And <clears throat> I definitely had some resentment built up when I would attend social functions.
1: Absolutely. I feel like Every time I've taken public transit, that's not super solid. It was like every time I got to my destination, I was exhausted. I felt like I'd gone through war, like navigating the bus schedules and like between yeah, like kind of watching your back too. Like you gotta watch yeah, yeah. your back on public transit out here, you know. Like I'm sure everywhere, but like in right. the West, it's not super developed. Yeah, yeah. What were things that you learned uh, when you were working on that? farmer ranch, um, kind of more isolated place, what were some things that you learned to keep yourself from feeling lonely?
2: One of the, one of the things that I did back then. And, and so this was, I want to say it was 2009 ish is I actually blogged, which is a thing that existed back then where you would write more than 120 characters in, you know, actual Fully formed thoughts, like multiple pages, you know, that would take ten to fifteen minutes for people to read. And I blogged for my friends and my friends and family, and they would stay engaged that way. So I changed partially. I changed the medium of communication a little bit, um, and met needs for understanding of what's going on with my story through through writing, and that felt um, that felt connective because. When I would get online with folks, and this was like before, you know, Facebook was enormous, and it was still there, but I wasn't using it at the time. And, and um, people would know what was going on, right? They would actually read it. And so when I'd get on the phone with my grandparents, or I'd get on the phone with an aunt, or I'd get on the phone with one of my best friends, they'd read about you know, me getting bit by 187 mosquitoes and like, see the pictures of my ankles that were like blown up and, you know, all these things. right? And so in that way, it felt like I was being seen and and heard by my my community in, in, in a format that was longer than what's, I think, contemporary, like contemporarily normal at this point. So that was a big one. And one of the things that I've done, you know, you asked about, you know, what did I do at the time? and this is kind of carried over into, into a current tradition is if I was in a place with service and I was traveling, I would be on the phone with, um, you know, with one of my friends, if I was waiting at the bus stop, I'd, I would just circle through my close friends. Right. And one of the habits that I've developed now is I kind of keep a running tab of like my groomsmen that were at my wedding. And I cycle through calling them and just check in to see what's going on. You know, Or um, often I'll actually do that in the in the pickup. I'll call other operators, right? Because there's, there's another thing that'll happen for some of the folks that are getting into this is, you know, in the beginning, it's all new and you're, you know, you feel kind of like an outsider, at least that was my experience. And then once you get into the work to the point where you're not defining your identity by it anymore, it just is like you've transitioned and you're not, you know, you don't feel like an imposter and you're just, you're just in there and you're doing the work. There's this other thing that happens. And, you know, this is a little more information than you asked in the question, but my own experience was I, it was hard to be seen by people that don't do the work because it's hard for them to understand your experience, which I think is just true of the human experience in general. And so now what that looks like for me is I usually, you know, I'm cycling through my groomsmen on the phone and I'm cycling through some of my closest friends. And I also cycle through calling operators that have the same kind of problems and constraints that I face because I kind of need people from all parts of my life to witness what's going on so that I actually feel fully seen by people that understand me from different parts of my life.
1: I so resonate with that. Yeah. I come from also the suburbs and I frequently call friends of mine and they're just like, I will have a crazy day and something nuts will happen. And they're just, it's just so far outside of their worlds that it's nice to talk to, but it also is nice to escape with those people and talk about something that you do not face on a daily yeah. basis. And then, or maybe memories or stuff that's going on at home. And then, and then, yeah, check back in with other people and be like, um, wow, are you dealing with this drought or these mosquitoes or these, you know, this and that, like, yeah, yeah. yeah so.
2: Yeah. It's nice to have the full, full spectrum of witnessing from, from all, from all types.
1: Absolutely. And I also think that there's a unique experience about, people from the suburbs or the city coming to rural environments. And I feel like that's not talked about in a very real way. It's more of like, look at this person going to the country, you know, like it's so, oh, it's made into this like kitschy narrative. Uh, and it's not, and then you, you don't actually get the nuance of like really important transformations that happen. And so I feel like you, you, probably were there for that's an interesting I feel like that I've I've dealt with those same issues of like yeah. you know I still like to go to concerts I still like to go to shows that's like a part of how I grew up is you know hanging out and riding skateboards in downtown and going to shows and uh you know eating at restaurants and like living the kind of city life and then you know kind of transitioning to that that rural lifestyle so yeah. I appreciate that.
2: Yeah, no, you, you bring up a really great point and not to dive off topic, and I won't take up too much time. But no, please. But I, I, I think, you know, what you just pointed out specifically is there's an archetype of a person, right? And there's a lot of us that are coming not from the country that are coming to the country to farm and to ranch in the way that they're viewed or were viewed, or we even view ourselves is almost like a caricature, right? Um, it's kind of like, and if you see a group of people you know, that are out. Right. And let's say you're at a bar and they're drunk and they fit a specific category and you're like, look at that group of drunk assholes. Right. And, but if you actually engage with one of them, you're like, oh, this is a fucking human being with hopes and dreams. They're a person they need to be seen and understood. They're not just this monolith of drunken assholes, you know, um, they are, but they're not right. And I feel like people that go from the suburbs or the city to farming, you know, we we're, we're kind of like this monolith, of drunken assholes, right. That are characterized as a group, but, you know, asking the question, like from a larger perspective, what do we, what do we want moving forward? Do we want people to be more engaged in agriculture? That's what people from ag want. They want more people from the city to understand what their life is like. How do you think that fucking happens? It happens by people that have no lived experience, (laughs) awkwardly coming to this new space and doing a bad job for a very long period of time. You know, my three and a half year old daughter who's been raised on a ranch is more competent than I was at 18. Right. And, but, but the transition that we're asking for the way that it looks, there's no other way for it to look than for this awkward ass transition. Right. And and that's what the experience is like, but I know for me, there's shame in that there's fear in that there's sadness in that. And I, I think you're hundred percent right. It's not talked about a lot um, because it's not a sexy topic, right? It's like we brush over it and we skip straight to like sequester all the carbon and heal the world. And my farm saved 17 babies today, you know, but like, what also about the journey of the people that are making the transition and, and the awkwardness and challenge and, and shame in that, you know?
1: so you know back when when you were living in a super isolated place you said that you relied on phone calls a lot is that still something like have you transitioned i know now you don't live in such a rural place but um would you say that's the best way to communicate with people like did you ever Mm -hmm. i guess you know video chatting wasn't super huge at the time. But would you say like a phone call is the best way to, to communicate with people? Or, or is it that you have to see them in person? Like how what, what is your best or letters or email or blogs? Like, what is what was your most effective way of communicating and keeping those relationships?
2: I, I, you know, there's me, and there's what I think. Uh, there's what was good for me, and what's good for everybody. And you know, I think my my standard answer to things are like whatever works best for you, whatever you're going to use most frequently. So whatever whatever form of communication you have the most access to, that's most reliable, um, and you enjoy using. You know, is probably the best for me. It's phone. I really like phone um, because <clears throat> I can do stuff and still talk to friends and family and I'm in the truck a lot cause I'm driving between ranches. And so for me, you know, talking on the phone is, is a great way, is a great way to connect because I don't have to stop and, um, stop and like actually, uh, you know, stop what I'm doing. Right. I can, I can, I can continue. I can multitask to a certain degree. And I definitely have friends. I'm sure there's lots of people out there that prefer different ways, but I definitely have friends that just prefer to FaceTime and they all, that's all they do. And I'm always taken aback, you know, when they FaceTime call me, I'm like, what Like, you know what I mean? There might be like five, 10% of my friends that they prefer the FaceTime. And I'm like, what's going on? I'll like press FaceTime. I'm like, here, stare at the roof of my truck. You know, (laughs) I'm like, I'll pick it up when I'm at a stoplight.
1: What are your favorite aspects of living in a rural place?
2: Uh, my favorite aspects of living in a rural place are the peace and tranquility that exists everywhere. Growing up in the suburbs, you're constantly bathed and surrounded by stimuli from the modern Developed world, right? Like you go out, there's tons of other houses, there's cars, there's sounds, you know, and you you can read about all these studies about the effect of noise pollution, specifically in an urban context on your psyche. Whether you know it or not, your cortisol levels are higher in the city just based on the amount of noise pollution, construction noise, those kinds of things, right? And so for me, rural life is the great equalizer of that because you step outside and, you know, it's birds. It's the rooster crone, it's the wind in the trees and it recalibrates my nervous system. So I, for me, that peace and ease was something that I didn't even know I fully needed when I was younger, because I didn't even realize it was an option growing up in the suburbs. I would love hiking and camping and the trips that my family would take me. And I remember we would go up to Waterton where my family reunions were and are, and we drive through Montana. Um, you know, to get there, we'd and I remember whenever I would drive through Montana, I just even though, you know, I'm not there now, but I would feel at home. I'm like, man, this is amazing. And it didn't even occur to me that a human being could change their life and live there. You know, I was just like, but why is it that when I'm in this context, my body is so relaxed, you know, and I think the other one of the other aspects of rural life for me, that's pretty meaningful is when my friends and family come to visit me, I watch the same thing happen to their nervous system. They're like, Oh my God. I'm like, yeah, no, I know. I know. And one of the things that I say is I'm like, you know, this is an option just so you know, like you too can have this, this is an available set of choices for, for, you know, for the, for these folks. And um, for me that, that piece is, that piece is huge. And then one other part of my favorite aspect is of rural life is the way it forces you to become more self reliant and aware of your footprint on the world and on the planet. Um, if the water goes out, you have to deal with it. If the power goes out, you have to deal with it. If you know the driveway floods, like that's it. You you know you are the person you've been waiting for, right? To fix a lot of these problems. And when you're living in a rural Situation it puts you into greater context. I feel like greater situation for for self reliance, and I think you know one of the biggest challenges in and divides between the urban and the rural is is that reality that that you know there, there's it's complicated for sure. But rural folks, one of the biggest challenges I think they have is that they're so used to being self reliant, and when they see people in urban settings, they see you know, I think often people that might not be as self-reliant in that context where they're going to call AAA to fix their flat tire or whatever, rather than be able to fix it themselves. Right. And I think there's a, there's a a, sort of like a cultural friction there, you know, and there's a lot going the other way for, for rural folks, but I, but I think that component of self-reliance is, is big.
1: I could hear birds chirping in between your answers. And that was really lovely.
2: There's like six bird nests right outside this window. I mean, my whole house has bird nests and the eaves and, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, and, and, and the other the other part, I guess, I, I want to add to that question just is the other thing I love about rural life is raising my daughter here. It's amazing. And my daughter can walk outside and play and um, engage with the natural world. And I feel like that access to the natural world is, is the original human condition. And it's a birthright um, that we lost. And to watch that be restored for her is extremely meaningful to me. You know, by the time she was one and a half, she could positively ID poison Oak, right? She called it, um, poke, but you know, I mean, and that just that relationship with plants and animals and is, is so, um, is so meaningful. And I, and, and really paints the fabric of everything I wanted in my life. And that's, honestly raising my daughter in a rural context where she can have this birthright restored of um, connection to the natural world is probably the most meaningful part for me of the rural life matrix.
1: You know, I think I have a lot of resentment for the place I was raised and it's so difficult for me to go back. And so I think that's so cool that you're passing that down to her And she gets the lessons that you've learned, like this awesome thing that you found that she doesn't really have to think about that. It's just going to she's going to know how to change her own tire. She's going to know how to, you know, um, like fix fix her own water tank and like, you know, um, drive cattle and ride a horse and do all these things that you had to go 20, 25, 30 years without knowing. So that's that's really exciting. I love that.
2: Yeah, it is. It's healing. You know, it's healing to be able to provide that for somebody else to, and then watch them. Hopefully, if you do a good job, they take it for granted.
1: <laughs> and then move yeah. back to the city. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, 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 yeah,
1: So one last question. This podcast reaches a lot of folks who are working on farms and ranches, um, rural or, you know, close to town. Um, what is, you know, in general, not necessarily t- to towards folks who are in rural super rural situations what's one piece of advice that you would give a young agrarian starting out
2: i think the most important piece of advice i could impart to a young agrarian starting out is to not feel like being a farmer or a rancher is the only way they can participate in the food system there is a romantic notion of food and food production and it ticks a lot of boxes in the ideological value realm that make a lot of sense but the ideas and values behind regenerative or sustainable agriculture don't necessarily have a direct correlation to the quality of the experience of the work and the location of the work that unfolds when you're actually doing it i think in uh, the academy they call this the theory practice gap you know to a certain degree right you've got all these ideas and You want to put them into play and you want to be part of these ideas. You know, you listen to a podcast, you read a book, you saw a presentation, you watched a YouTube video, you watched a Netflix documentary. I want to be part of that because I like those ideas and I want to restore the land in that way. But the actual fabric of the work, the day to day of the work, the challenge of the work, the stress of the work um, can be massively overwhelming. And that's okay. And I think what I would say to these folks that are getting in it, and I wish someone you know would have said to me, is farming and ranching is one of the many ways that you can participate in this system. But there's a series of people in different organizations that are constantly supporting us in the work we do, whether that's other nonprofits, NRCS, marketing groups. Um, you know, there's so many ways to participate in a sustainable and regenerative food system. So don't put a bunch of pressure on yourself to think, Hey, I'm going to have to learn how to become a cowboy, or I'm going to have to learn how to do row crop agriculture. You can get your feet wet, but the reality of this work is there's, there's so many ways to participate, you know? So don't, don't put that pressure on yourself. um, if, if you feel like that's the only way you can make it because the, honestly the work is the work is really hard. It's really hard. And if you're young and you don't have a family, and you're privileged enough economically from a resource and education background to be able to work for low wages for an extended period of time, because you don't have family depending on you and you don't have kids depending on you and you don't have grandparents depending on you. Um, that that's okay, but there's going to come a time in your life when you have hypothetically, if you decide to, you know, partner and, and get married and have children, you're going to have a level of responsibility, um, both financial and physical, um, that is, that's gonna put a lot of pressure on you. And and making it work in agriculture is a really challenging way to actually provide for yourself if you come from the outside. Even if you come from the inside, it's really hard, but you have an extra large handicap if you come from the outside. So think about other ways that you can take the talents that you developed wherever you develop them and, and support the folks um, that are doing the work that you believe in.
1: I 100% agree because now I'm in a position where I, I call myself agricultural adjacent, like farming adjacent, because I'm working with farmers and ranchers, but, um, and I do have my own farm on the side, but primarily I'm doing this work. And I think it's so important to recognize that life happens in, in pieces, like there are pieces of your life that can, you can be a cowboy and then you can go and do another job and you can come back to that and you can, you know, you have no idea what your life holds it has in store for you. So that's something really cool to think about is even if it's not happening just at this moment um you can find it's so crazy uh kibera has a newsletter that we send out all these job opportunities and i had no idea there were this many jobs in agriculture in in regenerative agriculture truly every month we have like 10 job postings that i'm like oh my gosh i i wish someone would have told me about that. So i totally agree with that advice, because um, some people's skill set is great on a ranch. Some people's skill set is fantastic at a farmers market, in a marketing association, in a nonprofit, you know, in in RCS. So
2: yeah, and it's hard. Like you, and I, and I think like like you pointed out earlier in the conversation, just like there's not you know like a clear cogent dialogue about the transition of folks from urban and and suburban settings into into the rural. Like a real, honest, clear framing about what what that transition is going to be like and what the opportunities actually are, you know, uh, is not usually a topic of conversation. And anyway, and that I mean that that's its own whole thing that I could talk about for a very long time. But but having had to spend so much time learning just basic fundamental skills that my daughter's going to have by the time she's six as an adult. You know, it has been has definitely been a challenge. And when I watch other people trying it, I'm like, I want to be able to support them.
1: <laughs> you know, totally. Because it's also like when you go to, you know, I went to uh, an a land grant institution and for university. And when I was going there, it was like you're going to become a farmer, right? And it was like that's if you study agriculture, you become a farmer. And I didn't grow up, yeah, in an agricultural context, so I didn't understand that that all of these other positions even existed. And a lot of times like that, yeah, people just don't talk about that until, and they think it's growing. Like every year I can see it growing and even organization has tripled, like HMI is getting huge and Savory is huge. And, you know, all these crazy um, little niches are opening up too. So I think that's super exciting and that's, that's awesome advice. So thank you for sharing that.
2: Of course, yeah.
1: I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time. You literally ran from loading cattle and trailers to talking to me. So (laughs) I very much appreciate you taking the time out of your day. um, And I wish you the best in your season.
2: Oh, thanks, Taylor.
1: We'd like to thank Byron so much for being on our podcast today. If you want to catch up with all the awesome things Byron is up to, you can go to sonomamountaininstitute.org or groundedgrassfed.com. You can also follow them on social media on Facebook or Instagram at groundedgrassfed.
3: And now it's time for the tips and tidbits section. My name is Tyler Eshelman. My wife and I run a small farm in Goat Dairy in New Mexico. And the best tip I have to offer beginning agrarians is to spend time building lots of good relationships with folks in your communities. Find out who the mentors are, who you can ask questions to, who might have equipment to share, what farmer networks exist, but also spend the time getting to know your local markets, customers, and neighbors who has young kids who might want to visit the farm. Invite them to see what you're doing. Whether that's in person or via social media, people in your community want to see what you're passionate about. These connections are invaluable. It can set you up for many years of running a successful operation. Sometimes in rural ag, we can feel lonely, isolated, disjointed. But remember that you're not alone. and You don't have to do it all by yourself. Thanks for listening to my tip and I hope it helps. If you have a tip or tidbit you'd like to share on the podcast, please send an email to newagrarian at
4: Looking for a job in regenerative agriculture? Kavir Coalition has spent decades building a network within the regenerative agriculture community. We're constantly finding awesome job postings, so we decided to send them to your inbox in our inspiring monthly newsletter. We find jobs and apprenticeships that will keep you learning and building your career, whether that involves moving cattle on a ranch or attending meetings in an office. One of the jobs that we're featuring this month is from Mesa Top Farm, a diversified multi-species farm just outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Mesa Top Farm values a healthy ecosystem and balance of wild species with economically viable production of food through rotational grazing and regenerative agriculture practices. This intermediate-level position offers lots of opportunities for growth for someone to both contribute to the existing operations as well as potentially expand into other areas of production. Help is needed immediately. The position starts at $15 an hour with housing available on site. Contact us at newagrarian at kaviracoalition.org for more details on how to apply. You can hear about other upcoming opportunities by signing up for our newsletter at kaviracoalition.org. You can also find our past newsletters with previous job descriptions at kaviracoalition.org slash newagrarian slash resources. And stay tuned for more info coming soon about our 2022 New Agrarian Apprenticeships. Applications for the 2022 season will open November 1st. Be sure to check the website, that's kaviracoalition.org slash newagrarian in October for updated site descriptions for all the mentors who will be hiring. If you'd like to learn more about the program, send us an email at newagrarian at org.
0: Thank you for listening to Regeneration Rising, a podcast production of the Kavira Coalition. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this podcast, visit kaviracoalition.org slash podcast to become a sponsor or Patreon supporter. We'd like to thank Kavira staff members Leah Ritchie, Taryn Dixon, Taylor Sanders, Leah Potterwaite. Tyler Eshelman and Tafari Finn for their contributions to producing this podcast. This episode was edited and engineered by Caleb Wenzel Fisher. Wanderlust, our theme music, was made by Scott Buckley. And we're grateful to our guests for taking the time to talk with us about their experiences. Thank you for listening.